Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 142. You may be able to hear in my voice that I am not doing so well right now. Today is Thursday, January 16th, and this episode was actually recorded about a week, ah, exactly a week ago. Uh, in that time since I recorded, I've had the flu, which I greatly underestimated and I thought would be a two or three day thing and has turned into a week-long thing of very uncomfortable feelings of which I will spare you all of the nasty details. But I'm coming out of it now and I am ready to put this one out and to get moving on all those episodes that I was telling you about. I got a lot of really cool stuff coming and I unfortunately had to pause the momentum for a little bit uh, so that I could kind of not die here. Um, But I'm doing all right. Okay. My guest for this episode is Priya Krishna. Priya is a food writer for Bon Appetit and for the New York Times. And she wrote an incredible cookbook called Indian-ish, Recipes and Antics from a Modern American Family. It's a really fantastic cookbook. It's beautiful. It reads in parts like a memoir and I think is really interesting and unique. If you go to, you know, top 10 lists all over the place for cookbooks and just books in general from last year, you'll see it pop up over and over again. I've seen it on there with Andrea Wynn's uh, cookbook from last year as well, who has also been on this podcast. So that's really exciting. And honestly, I predict that this is going to win stuff. Um, Like I said, it's really fantastic. I'll read you just a a portion here in a little bit. But... um, Priya also has a really great Instagram uh, feed and a Twitter feed. And on her Twitter feed, you'll find links to articles and different things that she curates that she's interested in, but then things that she wrote herself. And her writing is really phenomenal. She has a lot of really cool ideas and original ideas, and it makes for uh, fun and interesting and exciting reading. So I would implore you to go to the show notes for this episode so that you can find all that really cool stuff. I will say here at the outset that this is not my finest work. And I'd like to own up to that right off the bat and sort of preface the conversation with that. This will likely sound like a pile of excuses, but I'd recorded four or five episodes in a week and I was run down from work. And I just kind of crashed. I mentally crashed. I take a lot of pride in being really prepared for these episodes, as prepared as I can be, uh, considering that every time I sit down with a guest, I'm the stupidest person in the room because they are a specialist at something or have their own really amazing stories or they know a lot about something that I know very little about. Uh, and Indian cooking is something that I know very little about. So these are conversations that I, you know, I really research a lot and I come prepared so that we can have a good conversation and I can represent my guest well. I was walking to Priya's apartment, I jumped off the G train and I had an awful day at work and I just started crashing and I felt it as I was walking there. And in this conversation, my mind just like words were not, they weren't forming. I don't know if you've ever had that. It's not, it's almost like writer's block, but it's just, it's just mental block. Uh, and so, I don't know, maybe you'll be able to hear it. Yeah, likely you'll be able to hear it. But this is not the best, uh, the best version of myself. And so I'd like to apologize for that at the, at the outset. I'm always hard on myself after a lot of the conversations, but um, I think I'm pretty right about this one. Yeah, but still, I think a really valuable conversation to listen to. And if you don't know who Priya is, now you know from this episode. And uh, she's someone to follow because I can see some, I mean, th- there are big things now. Like I said, this book is is really popular uh, and her writings really get noticed. But uh, I see even, uh, 
even bigger things for her in the future. So uh, make sure to go to the show notes and to check out the links to her stuff. I'm going to read, and this is with permission. So I did ask Priya if I could read part of the forward. The forward is from Padma Lakshmi. You likely know of her, if you know of her, from uh, Top Chef. She's a judge. She's been all over the Food Network. She has a really phenomenal memoir herself uh, that I would recommend you check out. But it's funny because as I was flipping through the cookbook, there's all these anecdotes and there's this writing, so it's not just recipes. Um, it's These are all recipes from uh, Priya's mom. And so there's a lot of cool stuff about her family. And I was reading it, I was like, oh man, this is like a, this is really like a love letter to her mother. And then I went back and I, I read the forward after reading through the, the recipes in the book. And here's the first line that I'm going to read to you and then I'll uh, follow it up with some more. So, this cookbook is really a love letter from Priya to her mother. And when you peruse the pages, you will see why. But it is also so much more. It demystifies a very sophisticated and layered cuisine into something that's very doable, not only for a dinner party, but also for a quick, yummy weeknight meal. You can pretty much get all the spices and odd Indian ingredients you need with one visit or online order to an Indian grocer, like Patel Brothers. So there's no longer any excuse to be intimidated. It turns out that all the hacks a busy suburban working mom of North Indian descent uses in her own kitchen in Dallas just happened to distill Indian home cooking to its essence, all while tying it to its new American roots. Master the simple recipes in this book, and they are very easy to master. And you'll know enough to understand the flavors that are common to most Indian food. Priya's easy directions walk you through every step. Her humor will encourage you, and her suggestions will come in handy for other totally unrelated recipes you may encounter in your life. I really like the humor here too. Um, I brought it up. I kind of missed the mark when I brought it up in the conversation again. Like I just was not, I was falling flat folks. Um, but her writing is, is hilarious. Like even in, uh, some of her articles in the publications that I mentioned, like there's a lot of, uh, bathroom humor and things like that. Um, she's very witty and, uh, I think that this is really fantastic. So yeah, I agree with that, that forward wholeheartedly. And I also really enjoyed the fact that, it breaks breaks down recipes that you might think are quite complex into very simple and easy to do recipes. So I think that's really cool. I was kind of bummed out when I was walking home, uh, just because of all the things that I mentioned at the outset. And then I saw something written by a principal in New York City. I thought it was kind of appropriate. Her name is Nadia Lopez. I'd like to read this for a second. This is going to be a long intro today, folks, but. Haven't had a long one in a while. Yeah, so this is, uh, I saw this on, uh, on LinkedIn, but this is Nadia Lopez. She's a founder and principal uh, for a, a school here in New York City. And it says, back in 2017, my primary care doctor became increasingly concerned with my health. He told me that I needed to take time off from work to give my body time to heal and to focus on my mental wellness because he feared that something irreversible could occur. But navigating the politics of taking a sabbatical and who would cover the school in my absence created an enormous amount of anxiety. As a principal, 14 days off during the summer isn't enough time to rest and recover, especially since new initiatives are rolled out, new curriculum incorporated, state exam results are released, and new hires, all on top of our summer programming for my scholars. This is literally a 24-hour position that requires quick responses and finding resolutions to, deals, to deal with situations that are nonstop. Despite what it sounds like, I love that I created a school where I can celebrate children and empower them to know they are brilliant. But how many of you have sacrificed your well-being? Sometimes it's because you feel like you have no other choice or are so committed to helping others that you put yourself aside. In all honesty... We should never be placed in the position where taking care of ourselves feels like a, an act of guilt, a sign of weakness, 
or comes with repercussions. I've seen that a lot in my career where uh, people will say like, oh, this is a family. And that's kind of used against you, right? Because you do anything for your family or, you know, like it's about the kids. So put your own feelings aside. And that is true to an extent, but um, never let yourself feel like you, your own feelings and your own health and your own sanity, like they don't matter. Because you do matter and a healthy you is vital to whatever organization or whatever group, or whatever you're a member of. So yeah, I was sort of identifying with that uh, because I've worked as an administrator for a while and uh, was just feeling really, really burnt down um, or burnt out and uh, identified with that. So I just want to say, remind yourself uh, to take some time for you and that there's nothing wrong with that. Don't feel guilty about that. Remember when I had the Orange is Optimism folks on and they talked about uh, the idol theory? That with like the Puritan work ethic in the, in the U.S., we have this idea that, that stopping and even like taking some time to literally do nothing, that that's a bad thing. Whereas in a lot of cultures, uh, napping is quite common. Or, you know, a lot of people who are, are more in touch with themselves are able to put that stuff aside and, and sit and stop and turn off the noise and say, I'm not going to work for a little while. It's okay. I need this time for me. So that's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. And we've talked about this before, but uh, the yoga stuff that my partner is doing actually really helps out with that and is a, a helpful reminder that um, it's okay to slow down and it's okay to relax and it's okay to stop and to breathe. So I'm appreciative of... Les, thank you, Les. All right, I've had a lot of episodes about food lately. And if you're just tuning in for the first time, maybe some of these really quick things will, will be new to you. Uh, if you're a longtime listener, you've heard some of these, but uh, I'll just rehash them kind of quickly. But uh, obviously, like, I was, a, I was a big Bourdain fan, and I think he really... He did a great job of pointing out how, um, first of all, how complex food is. And that's something that Priya brings up in this episode as well. How it can't really be separated out from the, from the historical or from its own, its own politics and its influence. It's quite literally shaped economies, right? I taught um, history for a while. Uh, and sugar was fuel for the industrial revolution or how uh, coffee transformed society. And that to me is just fascinating uh, in its own right. But getting me started on this journey was food, right? Prior to really setting out into the world, I lived in, in, in Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, and we would go, my friends and I, my, my then roommate at the time, Big Dog, we would go and we would get Vietnamese food right on 86th and, no, yeah, 86th and, what is that there? Fourth? Yeah, 86th and 4th, right on like the, the corner where the R train is. And it would be Kevin, who's been on here a couple times, our friend Alex, me and Big Dog, and then whoever else uh, from our friend group we would invite on the you know given day that we were there. But Kevin had spent four months in Vietnam, and Alex had been there, and they would just tell these stories, and I would, I would, it would be like I was a little kid listening, you know, watching, watching a movie or or reading a book, or it's it just these these magical stories to me, and I was a little envious, and I was. Like, wow, I really want to do that. And so that's where it began, right? It began over food, food that was new to me at one point that I knew nothing about, that I was open to suggestions and, and learning more and eating as much as possible. And they had their liquor license at the time there. They, they lost it like right after that. But, you know, I was, we would sit down and get ba 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 beers and uh, bowls of pho, pho boko. And we loved it. 
And that was literally like the thing that propelled me to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to take the plunge and I'm going to go to, to Vietnam. And then when I think about the experiences, you know, I started talking on this podcast when I first started about like whatever I thought would be sort of like cr the craziest things, like the most sensational. I've dropped that, you know, pretty quick, but I didn't know anyone yet really other than my friends in those first couple episodes that I could have on. And so I would tell all these stories. But when I think about a lot of the most meaningful moments that I've spent traveling around the world, a lot of them start with a meal and, and end with a meal. And they're really the, the conversations and the people that I'm spending time with. And food is like the, it's like the great icebreaker, first of all, because we all need it and we all love it. Uh, but it's sort of similar to what I said before, like always being the stupidest person in the room. When I'm traveling, I'm always the least knowledgeable if, if I'm with people in their home country. And so uh, every single time people are excited to to show me their culture and to, to feed me and to see me be happy and uh, to see me enjoy the food. And that's then, you know, it's the pretext to, to learning more. And I was like, I was trying to like think through some of the best meals, right? Cause people are like, what's the best thing you've eaten? And that's impossible. Um, but man, I've had some really, really cool ones. Like being in Brunei and knowing absolutely nobody and, and, and just roasting. It was so hot. And it was Friday, so everything shut down. And uh, you could hear the call to prayer. And I think it's about an hour and a half that service happens on Friday, um, religious services. And then, you know, all the businesses shut down at that time. It's about, what is it, about, oh, gosh, come on, Tim, about noon to 1.30? It's about that. And, um, you know, I went and I was outside the gates of the mosque because you can't get in. And I was listening to it and I was like, wow, this sounds really beautiful. And I come across the river and there's just a guy in a boat who invites me on the boat, hang out, invites me into his home right on the water on stilts there. And I meet his family. I remember at one point I got this gnarly uh, um, splinter in my finger. I'm like, ah, and he's, like, he's pulling a splinter out of my finger and then they're bringing me into his house. And that first day we had... Um, Nasi, just nasi ayam, I guess, which was like fried chicken and, uh, or ayam goreng and nasi, um, fried chicken and rice. But then he said, tell me all your Indonesian favorites and we'll see what we can make here and come back on your very last day and we'll have a big meal. I came back on my last day and we had this massive meal and all the kids are there and the family's there and they're showing me photo books of their trip through Australia and I was like, why are you being so nice to me right now? Like, you don't know me. Like, why are you doing this? I have nobody. And they're like, well, look through this book. Like, there's a family in Australia that was this nice to us. And so we're just returning the favor. And then one day you'll do that for someone. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, it was so much fun. I think about uh, very recently being in Chef Shawin on a Friday and it's fasting in the morning and then there's Friday couscous. And Les, or I, Les and I just accidentally wandered into the rug shop where we met some expats and we met some travelers and we, we met all the family from the rug shop and bring out this massive, massive meal of couscous. And we all have, we all have our own spoon and we're all digging in and it's incredible and amazing. We're having a great conversation. And we're buying rugs and we're drinking mint tea. And we're making plans. And they're telling us where to go and how to get to the Spanish mosque to see the amazing sunset right after that. Like that, that, was, that was food. It's weird. I was thinking of one in particular. Uh, well, there's so many from Vietnam. Oh, my God. There's so many. Sitting street side in Vietnam, like this, I, this sounds like a very, oh, that's a Bourdain thing. Yeah, because it's, he was right, man. Like, because there's so much to see. There's so much going on at all times. There's so much, 
so much buying going on in the markets. Uh, thousands of motorbikes going by. It's loud, it's noisy, it's chaotic, it's cool. Uh, street side meals in, in Vietnam are they're the best. Like I remember being at Hanoi and we were at the the Bia Hoi place where they make the fresh beer every day and it's like 30 cents US a beer. Just sitting street side, just like breathing in uh, <laughs> uh, the exhaust fumes from, from all the motorbikes zipping by. And it's just wild. Like I remember when Kevin and I were there that time and we were hanging out with our friends and we were eating all this food at night and I made the mistake because, oh man, my stomach is, is the worst. But I, I had snails and then I got really sick from it. Not that there's anything wrong with snails. I love snails. Um, but these are a little funky. But we're sitting there eating them and we see this woman get into a fight with her husband and she just crushes a flower pot, like a ceramic pot, just over his head. Like, what, what is going on right now? <laughs> But, I mean, there's many, many meals from Ho Chi Minh City, from, from Saigon. But I remember this one, this is going to sound really wild and maybe ridiculous to you. Uh, but we're hanging out with our, our friend Sam. And she was just talking about how when she grew up, she grew up like way out past District 12 on, a, on like a little farm area. And her parents were growing some tea leaves and some coffee. But they didn't really have any money. And that it was, it was often hard for them to get meat. So if they had chickens and things like that, uh, eventually they would eat the chickens, which makes a lot of sense. But then she talked about eating things like field mouse, which she actually, through our friend Kim, who uh, who lives there, explained to us is actually like likely to be rat. Uh, but the reason that this came up is because we were talking about cats, and and Sam was saying that she's haunted by cats because she had this cat when she was a kid, and her dad had to kill it, and she knew. <laughs> Or the cat knew what was going to happen. So the cat was staring at her. And we're just like, wow, this is a ridiculous story, right? And, you know, she's very somber and serious about it. But then she's cracking up laughing about it. And the reason why this was so memorable is because, like, there were so many... First of all, that's a wild story. But the scene, you have to understand, like, it's so hot and it's monsoon season. She tells us this ridiculous story and it's got all the emotions of sadness to happiness to spooky. And we're sitting there eating uh, bowls, just bowls of noodle soup. What was it? What were we having? Um, I think it was a uh, bumbo hui. I think so, right? That's with the thicker noodles. And it's the first time I'd had it. And she recommended it. And we were just throwing in fresh herbs. And it just starts coming down. Like it is pouring like those crazy crazy monsoon rains and it's like sizzling off of the street and she tells a story that would sound outrageous here or even like like off-putting right um like throwing what would seem odd to many people different you know proteins that people might think are unedible but what she had to do when she was young and the family didn't have money and they had to eat and uh, it was just, that setting is just, it was like perfect to me. We're like, we're learning about each other and laughing and sharing stories. And it's just, boom, the skies open up and the gods just rain down. Oh, it's just really, really cool. She's now a, uh, she's a real estate agent. God, I haven't seen my friends in Vietnam in so long. But do you get what I'm saying? Like, this has been a super long rant, but like, yeah, this is why food, man. This is why food. And this is why, like, this isn't just a cookbook. And this is why Priya's not just talking about food, but she's talking about her life. And it's like a memoir. And in this conversation, she's talking about food, but she's schooling me as I fumble and bumble my way. But she's talking about history. And she's talking about politics and society today and representation and really freaking delicious food and talking about how, hey, you could, be, you could be a cook. This isn't so hard. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm really on this, this food kick lately and there's going to be more, folks. I got some other cool things coming up in the world of food.
But yeah, I'd love to hear from you guys. I think it'd be cool to like field questions for an episode, but I'd love to hear your stories. So yeah, reach out to me. The the voyages of Tim Vetter at gmail.com or the voyages of Tim V on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And you know, DM me or leave a comment or send me an email and let me know your 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 best meal around the world. God, I have so many, man. How about being in Brunei? <laughs> uh, Brunei is a dry country. And just going over the border and right over the border into Malaysia. If, I don't know. It feels like a bad deed, like leaving a country just to go, to go drink. Uh, we went over the border to Malaysia and hung out with my new friend Brian. Ate chicken wings, drank some beers, talked, laughed. Got some cool stamps going back and forth. That was a cool one too, man. There's all the the things that people might think are, are wild and weird. And at one point I did until I've really been opened up to the idea that, you know, what you have where you are, you're going to eat. And that's quite normal. But never as a child would I ever th- would have thought what I would have eaten a snake heart or bat or, or jellyfish or camel. Where did I just have camel in Fez? I had a, a camel burger. And it was awesome, man. Like, you know, I got to to joke around with a couple dudes from there and uh, and the guy cooking the food. And we walked all over the place trying to find that too because I had seen it online and it said how like prevalent it was, but it really was, it was, not, was not that prevalent. It was kind of difficult to find. Yeah, that was, that, was a, that was a cool one too, man. The camel. Indonesia's got, oh, God, Indonesia's got so many. Even just, like, waking up having bubur rayam, the street food culture that we just, like, we don't really have here yet. Were we talking about that in this episode? Was it that or it was uh, Chef Priyanka? Yeah, we don't have the, the street food culture that a lot of places around the world have. All right, I think I will end this intro now. But again, go to the show notes, find all the the links for Priya. You'll find a, a link to the Patreon account too that can be used to support this podcast. Um, just had a test run of some shirts printed up. Got some more coming. So uh, supporters of um, like the third tier for Patreon will get a shirt. Um, I got stickers, postcards from around the world, all sorts of stuff that you can get if you're a supporter and that keeps these, these episodes coming. So yeah, cool. Check that stuff out. And I hope that, uh, you enjoy this conversation with Priya. Check it out. Well, first of all, thank you so much. I know that you're incredibly busy. You have a lot of projects, a lot of platforms. This is very DIY, so uh, <laughs> I appreciate you giving me your time. I today. love I love a good DIY operation. That's all right, just awesome. my life. <laughs> <laughs> I I had uh, Andrea Wynn mm-hmm. on the podcast. If you're familiar with one her. of my favorite cookbook authors. Amazing. Okay, yeah. So I just want to let you know that there's some really good mojo and energy that comes off of this podcast because it was 2018 I think I had her on she was in New York the day before the James Beard Award mm-hmm. and I had her book and I was like damn this thing is beautiful and original and a really cool idea like I don't really know the competition but how could this not win something yeah and she won the next day I've had like not to brag <laughs> I've had a couple of fighters on here who went on to win championships amazing I don't know the timeline for the next 
uh, set of James Beard Awards. <laughs> but does does this fall, like, does the publication date fall within that time frame? It does. It does. Have you heard anything? Uh, they don't announce the nominees for for a while now. Okay. Yeah. Is this something that maybe interests you? Because, <laughs> I mean, obviously, like, I'm impressed by it uh, if I wanted to have you on. But, like, visually, it's really beautiful. Something that I haven't seen maybe talked about as much is, like, is your actual writing. Because the story of it, the content is really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think really unique and uh, really original. But uh, as I'm going through it, I'm writing down notes. And I'm like, this is part memoir. And then I'm writing down, before reading the intro, this is part love letter, which is then like explicitly stated, mm-hmm. this is a love letter to mom. But then I'm also like, this is also like a great revenge story. <laughs> and <laughs> I honestly think that maybe that's a good place to start. Um, um, I'm half kidding, like half not kidding. Uh, but you talk very explicitly about being a young person sort of navigating between worlds um, and trying to almost fully assimilate and not quite knowing how to do that with your peers in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe we could start there and, and say maybe like sort of the, the genesis for uh, why you wrote this cookbook. Yeah, so, you know, this it's, it's funny. I didn't set out to write this cookbook. This cookbook almost happened to me. Um, it started when I was working at Lucky Peach, a uh, food magazine. We were doing a cookbook on vegetables. My mom contributed a bunch of vegetable recipes. She ended up contributing more recipes than anyone else to this book, and all the recipes were were really well received. And so the editor of that cookbook approached me and was like, I want a book entirely of your mom's recipes. This is a really accessible approach to Indian cooking. You know, your mom seems like a really amazing woman. And so I kind of started working on a book proposal and shopping it around and selling it as sort of, this is the way that we can teach people that Indian food actually is really accessible while telling a really personal story about being um, a first generation and second generation family. And, you know, I, I also just wanted to tell a story that I hoped would resonate with other kids of immigrants. I feel like there are so many universalities about our experience um, that don't get written about or broadcast on a big stage, and I I wanted to do that. Yeah, it it seems, um, I call it kind of like having it, like, and and it is the fire. And uh, it might sound a bit pretentious, but it's sort of like uh, an artistic angst almost. And you are explicit about the fact that, or very honest about the fact that, like, you are an angsty kid. Um, <laughs> and I'm wondering, like, I'm wondering if, if you ever felt maybe any guilt about being like, mm, Mom, maybe I don't want that. Um, and, like, if this is at all a way to, like, say to your mom, like, no, like, Mom, like, you were really kick-ass and, like, what you're doing was in- incredible. Yeah, of course I felt incredibly guilty. My mom worked an incredibly demanding job and then put dinner on the table every night and then I complained about it. Mm. Like, that's insane. Um, It's also, I think, part and parcel of being a parent, but do I feel any less guilty about it? No. Um, I didn't write the book to like absolve myself of any guilt, but I did want to point that out and recognize that that is a part of being a kid and that is especially a part of being a kid of immigrants when your parents literally did not grow up here and there are just certain parts of your experience growing up in America that they just can't understand. Mm. Is that something that uh, you ever talked about outright when you were young? No, I don't think I even had the words to understand Mm. how I felt. Um, I was talking about this with my sister recently. It's like you have this underlying discomfort or you know that you don't quite fit in, but you can't really understand or put into words why. And it's only when you grow up, you kind of realize why you didn't quite feel that you fit in. And every, I mean, everyone has that feeling in in high school, but for me, it kind of came down to being a kid of immigrants and having brown skin. And obviously this is something you've talked about extensively at this point. Um, but for, you know, there's a variety of guests on this podcast. So for anyone tuning in who maybe hasn't heard of you before, uh, the idea behind mom's recipes was to keep 
elements and aspects of traditional Indian cuisine and sort of blend that with uh, like more American uh, treats and snacks that a kid might be craving as a, as a young person. I mean, there was no idea behind it. My mom just like mm. cooked what she wanted to cook and she used the ingredients she had available. You know, she wanted to make sog paneer but couldn't find paneer. So she threw in feta. She, we wanted pizza and all she had was roti. So she made it on roti. You know, this wasn't my mom sitting in the kitchen with a notebook dreaming up these creations. This was her being like, I've got 20 minutes mm. and my kid wants this and I want this. How do we come up with a compromise? Yeah, that's something I like about the book is how practical it is uh, in sort of demystifying the fact that like, wow, this is going to be something too complex for me to make. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was thinking like maybe there's sort of a connection to you had put out an earlier book, which is sort of like um, a survival guide for college kids yep. and, and cooking on your own. And if that maybe influenced it all, sort of like showing people like, hey, this is something you can do. You don't have to be a chef. I'm not necessarily like a trained chef. Totally. I mean, I think my mom was sort of always choose, teaching me how to be kind of DIY and uh, making something out of nothing and, um, you know, how you can find deliciousness in even the most dire of situations, even a college dining hall. And yeah. so I think there is definitely an influence there. There is this uh, phenomenon that was shown in, uh, did you watch the show Ugly Delicious? Uh, parts of it, yeah. Okay. Um, I quite liked it. I haven't seen the new show. I'm sort of less interested in seeing like uh, celebrity folks travel the world with him. But uh, David Chang went to, I believe it was New Orleans. I know he went to Houston, but um, there was a Vietnamese food that had a like blending with Cajun food, right? Mm -hmm. And when he went back to Vietnam, he saw that had influenced a few street food vendors in Vietnam. So like the route here is traditional Vietnamese food. There were immigrants here in America who uh, made it its own unique thing by blending it. And then that went back to Vietnam mm -hmm. as like this new thing. Mm -hmm. I know it's only been not even quite a year since the publication date, but as I'm looking through these recipes and I'm thinking like, oh my God, like if you're talking about roti pizza, I'm like, that's genius and looks absolutely delicious. I'm wondering if you've heard it all about like this now going back and traveling the route back to, to India and influencing anybody. I mean, I am sure Indians have been making roti pizza much longer than my mom has been making roti uh. pizza. I mean, it's not, I, I mean, it is like, I put it in the book because it's like something my mom loves, but I have zero doubt that there are plenty of other Indians who are putting tomato sauce on, you know, roti, baking it with cheese and things like that. So, you know, I think the biggest thing that I realized was, and I think this is really wonderful is like, you know, realizing how many people were like, I also put chopped masala on my almond butter toast. I also, <laughs> you know, um, top my grilled cheese sandwiches with tempered curry leaves and mustard seeds. And I definitely don't want the book to be like, my mom is sort of inventing this bold okay. new cuisine because Indians have been in America for a long time and they have been influencing Indian cuisine in India for a long time. And also like, India was under, you know, colo British colonial rule for a long time. So that cuisine in and of itself is so influenced by the West. So it's, it's, it's hard to say. On that note too, I was really, um, I was happy to see that there are places that I've been in the world that there's been Indian influence on, uh, some without me even knowing. So I love Indonesia. Usually, like, it's a hard question, but I always get, because I travel a lot, like, where's your, where's your favorite country? It's, like, an easy question, right? So I'm like, mm, I don't know, it's hard, but Indonesia. And I'm going through, and it's pronounced in Indonesia, achar. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going through your book, and I'm like, whoa, that maybe comes from India. And it's just, it's, like, a broad range of pickled items. Yeah, I mean, pickling is... A huge tradition that crosses regions and borders. So I'm not surprised to see it. Yeah, absolutely. I was just really like yeah. uh, surprised and, and happy to see like it was literally the same terminology. Um, and I know like there's obviously a lot of like Malay influence on Indonesia and Indian and Malaysian cultures have, have yep. fused a lot over the years. So um, that made me happy. <laughs> um, 
you, uh, you're quite frank about, uh, and honest and funny about like intestinal issues throughout the book. (laughs) Um, and that's something too that like, they make some of the craziest, uh, stories when I'm traveling. Uh, Mm -hmm. and people always want to know about, Oh, would you eat in that, this and that? And, uh, I've had to to stop eating certain things while traveling because, like, I have a terrible stomach. <laughs> and I'm wondering, um, I've seen you also, like, tweet about this, uh, what your ailment cures are for upset stomachs. Uh, Imodium, that, <laughs> that pill that, like, makes you burp minty stuff. Yeah. In India, that is what I take when I get really sick. I also eat a lot of Maggie noodles, which are these... Oh packaged noodles that it's like the Indian version of instant ramen and it's delicious and being really sick is an excuse to eat a bowl full of them. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that too, because people take their instant noodles incredibly serious around the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you sort of drew battle lines in this book by stating which noodles you use. And that is the Maruchan noodles. Um, yeah, but you can, you, you, can, you can use any noodles you want. I feel, I don't feel in that recipe. I do not feel any allegiance towards a brand. Okay. I was going to ask you though, because I get this all the time because I have a large following in again, Indonesia and people are, uh, militant about Indomie if you're familiar with it. Mm-mm. No. Okay. What is your go-to noodle? Uh, like in what context? Like instant noodle ramen. Maggie noodles. Maggie noodles. Yes. So I, I've seen you write in the book that like Amazon's a great place to get things. Yes. Uh, but like without any context for Indian groceries in New York City, where can you go locally to get things? Honestly, I buy, you can buy most of the ingredients for my book in like, I, there's a Whole Foods here. There's a Steve's Ninth Street Market there. Oh. I hate when I get asked, what's your favorite Indian grocery store? Because I'm like, yeah, Indian grocery stores are great. We should support them. But you shouldn't have to think that you have to go all the way to an Indian grocery store to mm. use this cookbook because that could not be further from the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's something I had Priyanka on uh, recently, who you know, Chef Priyanka Nike, oh, who's okay. one of your food testers. Yes, she was. Yeah, and one of the things that she pointed out uh, is that there's like a great misrepresentation of Indian food uh, in America. Because one of the things I asked about was curry. And you go on in the book to also explain that there's not necessarily a thing called curry in India. There are curry leaves, mm-hmm. right? But there's not necessarily a dish called curry. So I wonder too about like your... Um, your ideas around how Indian food in America is portrayed, um, like in the common household? Um, I mean, most of people's perceptions of Indian food is shaped by sort of like Indian takeout in yeah. restaurants. Um, and it involves sort of like big vats of like, you know, chicken stewed and gravies with large vats of rice and naan. And that is a very, very particular aspect of Indian food, but by no means represents the breadth and nuance of Indian cuisine. And I'm really amazed and excited by the number of Indian food writers and cookbook authors, you know, people like Chitra Agarwal, Nick Sharma, Tejal Rao, Kushbu Shah, Sonia Chopra, who are families are all from different parts of India and who are showcasing these different aspects of Indian cuisine. Like they are doing the work to sort of show that Indian food is not just butter chicken, chicken tikka masala. There is so much out there and your understanding of it isn't necessarily, you know, getting the full picture. Yeah. Why do you think the, the diversity of Indian cuisine, um, hasn't been as represented as it, as it could be and as it's starting to be historically here? I have this theory because I wrote my, I was a French major and I wrote my thesis about um, how the French sort of helped to turn food into this culture unto itself. Mm. I think the reason why French food is taught in all culinary schools is because the French were amazing at writing things down at codification. Ooh. They wrote dozens and dozens of books 
outlining the rules for eating and cooking French food. In India, traditions are passed down orally. It's not as much of a thing to, to write down recipes. Um, people are very regional, regionally minded. So say you live in Uttar Pradesh, you may not be super familiar with uh, the cuisine of, say, Gujarat. Uh, vice versa, if you live in Gujarat, maybe you don't know the cuisine of Maharashtra. And so I think because of that, you just didn't see a lot of codification and sort of inter-regional sharing of Indian dishes. And there are some really amazing scholars, you know, I'm thinking of Pushpesh Banth, who have done a really good job writing down um, and codifying these regional styles, but it happened much later mm. than a lot of European cuisines. And also like think about who are the people bringing knowledge about Indian food to the West. It was British colonizers. Oh, yeah. And their version that they brought to America was curry, this sort of catch-all term that erased any sense of nuance about our cuisine. You know, Italians got, you know, to teach Americans about all these regional styles and we got curry. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting, um, and thanks for sharing that. That's also like you can you can go to England today, and you can get fries and curry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's interesting and fascinating, and I think you see that in with a lot of cuisines. I mean, you know, most people probably at this point like uh, are quite familiar with like Thai food, right? Um, and Pad Thai maybe is like the dish that was like their, I like to think of like their gateway drug to like sort of starting to understand this culture. But the times I've been in Thailand, like it's Pad Thai is not as ubiquitous as you might think it is um, because of how prevalent it is here. But I'm wondering like if, if there is a crossover Indian dish that you think would maybe make people... Um, well, first of all, it's delicious, and but would make people uh, maybe be interested to try more Indian food. What that might be, I don't want to answer that question because there's just such amazing regional variation, and also like pad thai. The version that we think is pad thai is is a version that's probably yeah. been modified and Americanized, and I think I don't think that we should have to like, you know. I don't think that we should only be able to have one dish that gets people to like, you know, come and be interested in our cuisine. I think people should dive headfirst into our food and, you know, try dosa, try Italy, try dal, try sabzi. You know, that's why my book is not a monolith and there are so many other awesome authors out there. So I just hope that maybe you choose the recipe that's right for you in my book and it's a gateway for you to learn more about Indian flavors. That's cool. Uh, your family's from the north of India. Mm -hmm. How often do you go back? Not often enough. Um, I went back earlier this year. It was my first trip to India by myself, which was really exciting. Oh, cool. Um, and I'm going back again later this year because my cousin is getting married. Um, but when we were growing up, we tried to go every year for a while. And I remember we'd go with like two empty suitcases that would come back like filled with saris and mm. spices and things like that. But, you know, I wish, I wish I made it back more. Um, it's funny, usually when I go, they can spot that I'm American even before I open my mouth. And this last time I went, people spoke to me in Hindi. Whoa. And it made me really excited. But I also think, like, India is getting more westernized, too. So maybe it's, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little more Indian and Indians are getting a little more Western. <laughs> You, I mean, you write some, uh, I, I love your Twitter account uh, because obviously it's like it curates uh, everything that you've done and then like things that you're interested in as well. And your writing is really creative from talking about Costco to writing about um, the Libby's pumpkin pie. Uh, it's really witty. It's really cool. And um, it's really exciting. And I wonder like, at what point in your life did you think like, hey, I could have a career in food? Because there's so many people nowadays who are, you know, they have food blogs, they have food Instagrams, and it's them um, going around trying food at different places. But you have like a really 
authentic and original take on a lot of things. Like you're very creative. Uh, at what point did you think, hey, I might be able to break through with this? Well, thanks. First off, that's really nice to hear. Um, I kind of knew I wanted to go into food when I started writing about it for my college newspaper. I had this column where I'd go into the dining halls and come up with like creative meals you could make from dining hall food. And just mm. writing about food gave me such joy. Eating at restaurants gave me such joy. I read menus for fun. Um, and, you know, I studied uh, in France and in London while I was in school and just like devouring those restaurant scenes, like just really thrilled me. I wrote countless papers on food. I literally wrote my thesis in French on food and restaurants. What was that on? It was on the evolution of the word goût, which means taste and how you can sort of understand how the French turned food into this whole culture. Wow. Food into cuisine. Um, And I just, I am abnormally interested in what we eat and what it says about ourselves. And I just truly believe that every issue has a food angle and that the food angle is one of the most interesting lenses through which you can tackle a story. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like you're on the, the biggest of platforms, right? Like you're, it, I would assume it must be pretty exciting to be, you, you get to do really cool things, right? So this might be hard to answer, but from like a practical sense, right? What, how do, how do you break through, right? So there's, there's, there's so many people who uh, I talked to through the podcast who, who want to do something different, right? And so um, this, I always say like start a blog, start a podcast. Um, you're on The Times, Bon Appetit. You're on The Rachel Ray Show. Like what is it um, in regards to your work ethic or coming up with original ideas? Like, can you pinpoint something that says, like, this is what I always work at um, that has made me successful? I I mean, I I don't know if this is a good answer, but I work really, really hard. Mm. I don't miss deadlines. I make sure there are no grammatical errors in my copy. I love research. I research the hell out of every story I do. Um, I am communicative. I welcome edits. I'm not always, you know, I feel like some people don't welcome edits. I welcome the criticism. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that like, honestly, the, if you talk to any editor, what they're really looking for is like dependable writers who will turn in clean copy. Mm. And that is half the battle. And then the other part of it is just like being very, very authentic to who you are with my cookbook. I wanted to be very honest that like, I am not, do not consider myself an amazing cook. I am not the brilliant cook. The brilliant cook is my mom and my family. And I'm showcasing those recipes. I am just the, the conduit, the one giving my mom's recipes a microphone and then sort of telling them through my kind of unfiltered conversational lens. Um, I think in the book I said my mom's recipes with my lack of shame. Mm. (laughs) And I think that, you know, especially in my, you know, with Bon Appetit videos, I try to lean into that. Like I'm not a professional chef. My onions are not chopped perfectly, but you know what? That's okay. Your subsy is still going to taste really delicious. I try to own up when I, when I, you know, burn something or drop something on the floor. I think that people want to see that authenticity and, I think as long as you are honest with yourself and your abilities, then, you know, you can succeed. Yeah, I like that too. You mentioned, um, yeah, I don't peel everything because I can be a little bit lazy in the kitchen. I remember I was uh, watching one of the Bon Appetit videos and I made the the mistake maybe of like scrolling through comments and a few people were like, oh, you got to peel, you got to peel. But then I'm like, oh, you got to read the book because (laughs) it doesn't really matter, has fiber, has flavor and texture. Yeah. And I'm like, if you want to peel, peel. But yeah, I am, it's, I very often say these things and then just get totally crushed in the comments. This is why I stopped reading comments. Yeah. It's, it's YouTube comment world is, is brutal out there. Are you able to, um, pitch all of these ideas or are you asked like, Hey, here's an idea. Is this is something that you should work on? Most of the ideas are mine. And then some of them, my editor at the Times or my editor at Bon App will approach me and be like, hey, 
uh, we were interested in this. Do you think that there's something there? Do you want to cover it? I would imagine that uh, an, um, an enormous volume of work went into this project. Um, over 100 recipes. Uh, you mentioned all the tastings in there. Uh, there's also like the narrative prose in here. But I'm curious about if there's another large project either on the horizon or uh, the seed of that project in your mind right now? You know, I I think that there are a lot of sequels to cookbooks that don't need to exist because the first cookbook was wonderful. I feel that way about movies too. So many sequels yeah. that didn't need to be made. <laughs> and right now I don't have a plan to write a sequel to the book. And the reason is that I, I don't know that I have, you know, a a fully formed idea for a sequel in my mind. Like I'm so excited by the response of this and I want to sort of just keep riding that wave and promoting these recipes. And, you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I need to be, you know, immediately focusing on the next book. I'm trying to sort of take this year to figure out what my next step is. You know, I think one thing that I am unequivocally interested in is how can I make the food industry a more inclusive place? How can I make it such that Indian food and other non-Western foods are considered part of mainstream American home cooking? How can I make it so that I open the pages of a food magazine and it's not just white chefs and white food? Um, I just... I think like many industries, the food industry has a long way to go in terms of being truly inclusive. And I'd love to, whatever I do next, for it to be focused on that goal. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, I almost want to say like how, right? But that's obviously like a massive undertaking. Um, I'm thinking about um, access, right? Because, you know, we live in like one of the major metropolises in the world. Um, and I know you grew up in the Dallas area. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than, and we talked about Amazon, but if you're, I don't know, if you're in rural Kansas, is there uh, difficulty getting access to um, some traditional ingredients that you might need? Um, or access maybe to, I know the book talks about preparing at home, but access to um you know, delicious quality Indian food. Is that, is that part of, uh, why you think it's not as, um, inclusive and as prevalent as, as it could be? Um, yeah, definitely. I think like grocery stores are a big part of the equation. Like I think if grocery stores were to diversify more, it would make this cuisines, these cuisines seem a lot more accessible to Mm. people. Um, but I also tried to write this book with, you know, the middle of the country in mind, um, mm-hmm. thinking if I'm going to a, if I'm shopping at a like random Kroger in the middle of the country. Food line. <laughs> yeah. Like what do I have available to me? Um, I actually did most of the recipe testing. Um, I did a lot of the grocery shopping at Walmart because Whoa. I wanted to understand what, a Walmart shopper would have access to and what my recipes would taste like if you got all the ingredients at Walmart. And I I wanted to make sure that like you make a Walmart ingredients, it's still going to taste delicious. Obviously it's going to be ideal if you make it with the fresh, with really fresh ingredients. But I understand that not everyone has access to hyper fresh, hyper local produce and to the kinds of high quality spices that you might get in places like here or Dallas. Uh, other than yourself then, because an, another way we, we do this, right, is, is information, uh, is people learning. And the, the internet is, it can be maybe like the great equalizer because anyone with a library card can go on and learn anything about anything really, right, by going on Google. Who are some, um, who are some writers or some people working in food that, uh, that you're influenced by and you think that people should check out? Uh, Definitely Kushbu Shah, who's the restaurant editor at Food & Wine. Tejal Rao, who um, is the Los, is a Los Angeles-based restaurant critic for the New York Times. She covers all of California. Sonia Chopra, who works at Eater. Korsha Wilson, who's another freelance writer that I really look up to and admire. Um, Samin Nosrat, who wrote Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Mm. Um, 
I could go on and on and on. <laughs> There's so many awesome people in this industry. We're really lucky. What about your liter, uh, like your literary influences? Because, like I said, there's a really unique voice here, um, and parts of it really do read like a memoir. And I think it, it was really brilliant to like to weave mom in there, to weave dad in there as he's writing about yogurt. Um, outside of food, like where who's influencing your style? I grew up reading a lot of like Meg Cabot and Sarah Dessen young adult novels. Mm. I loved <laughs> the casual, conversational like you were along for the ride tone. And so I think you'll see a lot of that. Um, oh, I really, really love uh, the writer Gia Tolentino for The New Yorker. I think she does such a good job making these big, bold statements in such a casual way. Um, her prose is so easy to read. It's just always a joy um, there's a book called Emergency Contact. It's one of my favorite, favorite books. It's by, I believe her name is Mary H.K. Choi. And I absolutely love the way that she humanizes her characters. And I wanted that to be reflected in it. Um, yeah, I just, I just wanted you to read it and feel like you were just having a casual conversation with me and my mom and my family that we'd invited you over for dinner and we were just hanging out. Yeah. One of my pushes for myself in 2020 is like focusing on the positive. So even with, uh, these episodes I've been doing in the, in the early part of this year, I'm like, I want, you know, good creative energy around me. I want people who are happy and loving life. And, you know, it, a lot of times when you uh, you hear young people reflect on early life or like, you know, you turn on a TV show and there's like adolescent shows, like the parents are always kind of like the dummies, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, like silly dad, uh, you act so ridiculous or whatever. But there's such reverence in here for your for your parents uh, and your family. It it felt really good reading it. Um, so that contributed to <laughs> helping me stay on course with my goal uh, for positivity in 2020. I think I, we, could all, we could all be a little bit more positive in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I know you have a heart out, but uh, I want to plug this again. Um, it's, really, it's really beautiful. It's not just a cookbook. Uh, the art is really cool too. Uh, there's, there's a play on kind of like, uh, uh, Rosie, the riveter on the cover with the, mm -hmm. we can do it right. We can cook it. Um, and I see that art up on your wall here too. That's yeah. really cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, visually it's beautiful. The story is really cool. And like I said, uh, your writing is great. Um, and the writing that, that you feature on, uh, on your magazines and for the times is really great too. So I will plug in the show notes for this episode, just go on and, and I'll have a link to, to your Twitter, um, and to your website as well. And then to uh, a place where you guys can order the book, and I'll do a giveaway thing too. Um, but yeah, check it out, folks. Uh, Priya, thank you so much. I appreciate thank you. the time. This was great. Yeah, thanks so much. Cheers. That is a wrap on episode number 142 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. I want to send out a big thank you to Priya Krishna for coming on this episode of the podcast. I also want to mention Bridget Nocera. Bridget is Priya's uh, publicity assistant, and she sent me a wonderful copy of the book in advance. I actually went down to the mail and found a child in the building jumping on top of the book and its packaging, so I will be able to confirm that it is a very sturdy book because it held its own and it did not get crushed. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Like I told you, I got it right here in front of me, so you can... Go to, what is today? Today's the 16th of January. Uh, over the next week or so, you can go to my socials and I'll pick a random person who contacts me for really any reason uh, or leaves a comment or says they liked the episode or one of those people who sends me a favorite food story. And I'll pick someone and I'll send you a copy of the book as well. Just don't jump on top of it like the kid in my building. Yeah, so do that. So yeah, thank you to uh, Priya and thank you to Bridget for making this episode happen. And Voyagers, thank you to all of you. As always, you guys are the best. I appreciate you. Please take care of each other. I will catch you next time. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.